Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Dr. Zara Patel about the article International Registry of Otolaryngologists, Head and Neck Surgeons with COVID-19. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Stores. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Stores video platforms. Please visit www.carlstoresnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. My name is Sarah Wise and this is my first session as a guest host of Scope It Out. It's my sincere honor and pleasure to be invited to host the session today. For those who don't know me yet, I'm a professor of otolaryngology, head neck surgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, specializing in rhinology and otolaryngic allergy. I also serve as one of the associate editors of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology Journal. Today, we are joined by Dr. Zara Patel, Associate Professor of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery at Stanford University. She specializes in rhinology and is the Director of Endoscopic Skull Base Surgery at Stanford. Dr. Patel has been on the forefront of research and information dissemination in rhinology and otolaryngology during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we'll be discussing the article, International Registry of Otolaryngologists, Head and Neck Surgeons with COVID-19. Dr. Patel and several U.S. and international colleagues who represent the young otolaryngologists of the International Federation of Otolaryngologic Societies, or YOIFAS for short. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Patel. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we jump right in? Since this publication was released online on July 31st, we have seen substantial discussion. Tell us a little bit about the impetus for this study, how it was carried out, and a brief summary of your findings. Sure. From the beginning, uh, early on in this pandemic, I and, and other colleagues around the world were hearing reports from the countries that were affected most early on, places like China and places like Italy and Iran. And we at Stanford had initially put out a report just sort of compiling some information that had been shared with us, hoping that it would help the wider otolaryngology society. And we definitely wanted to follow that with something more substantial, something more standardized so that we could really understand uh, whether or not COVID-19 was affecting our specialty or if it was affecting it in any uh, particular way, uh, more than just what we had heard before. So Lee Sowerby is actually the lead author on this paper, and he is the one that reached out to me initially, uh, representing the, the young otolaryngologists, the International Federation of Otolaryngologic Surgeons, and asked uh, me to participate in this from the being, you know, one of the U.S. representatives. Steve Sobel and um, 
Zuka Sarji are also U.S. representatives that took part and, and helped in data collection for this study in the United States. Once this impetus had started to try to learn more about how COVID-19 was affecting our specialty, we thought about, you know, what is the best methodology to try to collect this data? Now, certainly trying to collect data on a global scale is no uh, easy task, and standardization of such is also not easy, especially based on all the differences in how information is disseminated and how people contact each other in all these different countries throughout the world. But basically, an initial call for participation was sent out to all the regional members of YOIFOS, and then it was further expanded and basically included 30 countries with the highest incidence of COVID-19 as of April 20th in 2020. Basically, these representatives were tasked with the survey distribution based on, you know, all the different local requirements, ethical requirements within each country, and whether or not they had engagement on this project with their national societies. There was definitely differences in ethical requirements here in the U.S. We got IRB approval through Stanford, and the REDCap database was hosted at University of Miami, and we were able to standardize the information that was received through this anonymous survey database. So, you know, basically getting to the, the point, this was a completely voluntary survey, and so in no way was this intended to establish prevalence or incidence within our specialty, but we did want to simply gain more information about any potential high-risk cases, what we thought um, may give us information about which PPE may or may not be protective, and just shed more light on, you know, how this was affecting our specialty. We basically got information. The final country number that we were able to gather real information from was 19 countries. And we also searched basically the internet for reports of deaths because in most of these countries, deaths are a publicly reported event. And the basic results were a total of 361 otolaryngologists were reported to have contracted COVID-19 as of May 2020. And of those, 325 had individual data available for analysis. And we were able to learn some very interesting key points about how this was being transmitted. Not surprisingly, about half of the transmission was suspected to be community spread. And uh, known community exposure was something that we had expected because Certainly where there is higher prevalence in either the U.S. or other countries, we would expect to have higher prevalence within our society as well. But also there were some interesting reports of clinical transmission, and this is where we really focused to try and gather more information about how to continue practicing safely with protecting ourselves and our patients. Thank you. Um, that was a great summary. I do have a handful of questions that I wanted to kind of chat with you about. You mentioned that data was submitted voluntarily from several different countries. It is noted in the paper that the data submission and the methods for collecting the data was somewhat variable from country to country. This differs a little bit from kind of typically accepted standardized methods of data collection and modern prospective study design. How do you reconcile this and does the urgency of the COVID-19 pandemic play into that at all? 
That's a great question and definitely something we noted in our discussion is one of the limitations of this type of data collection. There are so many different ways in which the data was collected in these different varying countries, primarily, honestly, because there are different standards in different countries about what is considered acceptable versus not acceptable data collection methods and ethically speaking, how anonymous data collection should be in a country versus another. Even here in the U.S., we had initially sent out an email to multiple societies asking for voluntary information and then realized that we really needed to take a step back, get IRB approval, make this really an anonymous standardized database that we were collecting things in. And so this was uh, moving in real time, trying to gather information while the pandemic was still increasing as it still is here in the U.S. I would say, you know, definitely one of the limitations of this study is this variance in data collection. But again, the main limitation when you think about that type of data collection really rests in whether or not you are trying to establish any sort of prevalence or incidence. And we clearly state in the paper that that was not the point. We really were just trying to collect more data in a more standardized fashion. And even though the surveys were sent out, through various means in all these different countries, we did certainly get the same standardized answers back throughout all these different countries. And so we were able to gather some information in a standardized way, despite these limitations of how the survey was dispersed. Great. Thank you for that. I would like to turn a little bit to some of the short case descriptions that are included in the paper. There are, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, about six short case descriptions, and they span various types of otolaryngology surgeries and subspecialties. How did you all choose the cases to highlight, and are there any unifying themes that we should learn from them? There were so many different interesting stories that people submitted, and there were certainly similar themes that seemed to resonate throughout these different reports. And so we really tried to choose different incidents that would demonstrate a different lesson that we seemed to take away from them. They weren't unique within all the other stories. Many were um, similarly reported in other reports, but we felt like each of the ones we chose taught us something about either testing or PPE or um, something along those lines. And so really, you know, the, the lessons that we took away from these were, for example, as sort of suspected based on prior information that we had obtained not only within our subspecialty, but throughout all of the medical literature, it did appear that standard surgical masks in a known COVID positive patient is not enough to protect you from exposure to COVID-19. So, you know, having an N95 mask seemed to be, I would say, the basic minimum of protection, not only a standard surgical mask, but even a laser surgical mask, which does have a little bit increased filtration compared to a standard surgical mask, that also did not seem to be enough protection. So that was sort of our basic takeaway. Then we also had some stories that demonstrated something different, that, you know, there was a question, and I think there still remains a question, as to whether or not PAPR or CAPR are superior to an N95 
when you're dealing with this particular infectious disease process, because there is really almost no data out there uh, regarding this. And we did see a report where a surgeon wearing a fit-tested N95 mask, because it was already far enough into the pandemic that that surgeon was able to have what he considered appropriate PPE, although it was unknown prior to the case that the patient was COVID positive, this was sort of preventative, prophylactic in case, but the surgeon still turned positive, even to the point of requiring hospitalization and ventilation, eventually recovering, thankfully. But that takeaway lesson was something that, you know, maybe suggests that an N95 mask may not be enough for preventing this transmission, and perhaps a capper or capper should be recommended if positive status is known beforehand, or if there's not enough time to wait for a result. So this certainly was a, a different perspective and something that perhaps confirmed some suspicions we had before, but really didn't have good data on. And then finally, I would say the last two points that we took away from these cases were that negative preoperative testing is not necessarily enough to guarantee a patient is negative for COVID-19 at least with current population prevalence, and that appropriate higher-level PPE should still be utilized, even if there's a negative test. This, I think, reflects what we all know about the variance in how accurate some of these tests can be, and the fact that there can still be false negatives, even when someone has tested negative, just having, having that thought. And then the final takeaway would be that, unfortunately, some of these reports that we got back were of surgeons who did not have appropriate access to appropriate PPE, meaning N95 masks. So surgeons knowing that they were at risk using standardized surgical masks, but not having the ability to obtain anything with a higher level of PPE were affected. I think certainly the takeaway all of us should have is that we need to continue to advocate for ourselves, for each other, for people who are in situations that are not as privileged as others and really try to get the best level of PPE to all of our colleagues across the world so that we can really mitigate any potential spread or damage. Fantastic. I also think that it's great within the paper itself that those lessons are clearly highlighted with each of the cases. So thank you all for that. Shifting a little bit, you mentioned that information from 361 COVID-19 positive otolaryngologists was collected, and the paper notes that 24 of the individuals died. And you've indicated on social media posts, as well as a couple minutes ago in, in this discussion, that we really shouldn't interpret this study as a COVID-19 incidence or prevalence study amongst otolaryngologists. I presume you would support the statement that we should also not really be calculating a mortality rate from this study. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yes, um, thank you for asking that because I do think that it is really important to take all this information in the appropriate context and with the appropriate knowledge of the limitations. This is a completely voluntary survey. There certainly are likely many, many other people that are COVID-19 positive that did not submit survey results to us, either because they didn't want to, because they felt that there may be some repercussion, or they were unsure about the anonymity of that submission, or because they they just didn't care to um, take part in this, which is certainly valid. There's also the fact that perhaps there's bias because 
people who were submitting may have had more mild versus severe symptoms, and those who were actively more severe did not have the time or inclination to respond to a survey. There are many, many different reasons why people may not want to participate. And as we noted in the paper, there was even one particular country who we had to remove the results that they had already given us because that particular representative was afraid of incarceration. They had been threatened if they shared the results from their own country. And so there are so many different reasons why this is not a complete database that we have. This is simply just more standardized reporting of information and on a voluntary basis. So no one should be extrapolating prevalence, incidence, or mortality rate at all from this type of report. All right. Thank you for that clarification. I want to talk a little bit about some of the sort of seroprevalence data. And this is, you know, we're getting more and more of this data coming out kind of across healthcare workers. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen claims that otolaryngologists and healthcare workers in general are at higher risk for contracting COVID-19. Really recent literature demonstrates conflicting results related to this statement. So I'm going to just briefly go over the, the highlights of a couple of studies. There's plenty more out there, but just to kind of sh- demonstrate quickly some of the conflicting results. So there's a report out of Wuhan, China by lead author Lai that was published in 2020 that talks about a cohort of 110 healthcare workers with COVID-19 finding that 0.55% of those working in high-risk areas were infected, whereas 1.65% of those working in low-risk areas were affected, basically showing that there seems to be a lower infection rate in those working in high-risk areas, even with similar training and protocols. Another study out of a large Spanish reference hospital by lead author Garcia Bestero was a study of 578 participants at the height of the initial Spanish outbreak, showing that the seroprevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in healthcare workers was 9.3%, whereas the community prevalence was higher at 11.2%. That study actually demonstrated a lower seroprevalence in healthcare workers. In contrast, a recent study in Lancet by lead author Wen, which was a prospective observational cohort study in the US and UK, basically using a self-reported data from a symptom study smartphone application and included 2.1 million people, of which nearly 100,000 were frontline healthcare workers, showed that the hazard ratio for healthcare workers was higher than for the community individuals. With adjustments, the adjusted hazard ratio was about 3.4. They also showed that Black, Asian, and minority healthcare workers were disproportionately affected. And these are just a couple of examples. So some studies showing decreased risk or decreased incidence of positivity in healthcare workers, others showing higher. Dr. Justin Turner had some comments in the IFAR journal 
on a number of additional studies addressing COVID-19 infection rate and seroprevalence amongst healthcare workers in his correspondence to your article. So can you just talk a little bit about the collective information that we've gained from some of these reports of seroprevalence and infection rate and how your article should be viewed in light of these other publications? Yeah, I think that that is all really important information for people to keep in mind when they're reading both our manuscripts and all other data that comes out uh, regarding, you know, exposure to healthcare workers. I think that what this reflects is something that we can logically understand very easily, and that is that healthcare workers are certainly exposed to a higher number of COVID-19 patients when we're in a setting where we're working with a high prevalence of COVID-19 patients in our community because they're coming into the healthcare system for care. However, the fact that thankfully, many frontline healthcare workers have access to higher level of PPE, for example, N95 masks and face shields, can protect them at a higher level than the community may be protected just wearing, for example, cloth masks or masks that do not have as high filtration of aerosolized or respiratory spread. And so, you know, I think that that explains why healthcare workers may actually, in some of these studies, have lower uh, seroprevalence than the rest of the community because they have access to these much higher levels of PPE. Now, I will say that this is dependent on each individual facility and the region, country, community in which those facilities are located. Because certainly, thankfully, you and I at tertiary care academic centers in large cities within the United States, we do have access to high-level PPE. That may not be true for every other otolaryngologist that is working not only in the U.S., but all around the world and and what they may have access to may not protect them as well. And I think that that is actually demonstrated quite well via one of those instructional cases that we decided to place in this paper. So I think that, for example, the study that you mentioned where healthcare workers in high-risk areas may have had a lower rate of exposure versus low-risk areas, this reflects the fact that even within one hospital or one region, there are decisions that have to be made when there is a scarce resource who will benefit most from these higher levels of PPE? Who will benefit most from this very limited amount of N95s that we have or PAPRs or CAPRs that we have? Certainly, you're going to choose the people that are at highest risk of exposure. But that, unfortunately, leaves a population of healthcare workers or community individuals who then do not have as high a level of protection and therefore may be more susceptible to having the infection. And so I think all of these things need to be kept in mind. The availability of resources, the prevalence of the infection in that particular region, uh, how many COVID-19 patients are going to present to an emergency department versus an ICU versus an elective surgery outpatient center. These are all things that are going to affect the prevalence within our population compared to the community. Great discussion. So I think from this article and the information that is coming out uh, about otolaryngologists and healthcare workers in general, I think has provided excellent knowledge for us, which we continue to build on. We all kind of 
enter our hospitals day to day. We work in our individual communities with the prevalence changing from time to time. We have to think about the resources that we have. We have to take the precautions that we take, but at the same time, we still need to come in every day and take care of the patients that that need our help. So I'd like to just close out our discussion with a question for you. In your work or in your life related to COVID-19, what is the change or adjustment that you've made that has has had the most significant effect on you? (laughs) That's a great question. Well, you know, I would say that based on, you know, all this information that we've been lucky enough to get from our international colleagues and from this survey, I think that, you know, the fact that on a day-to-day basis, we are, you know, at Stanford University basically at 100% volume operating as well as clinic, but the way in which we go about that is very different than what we used to do. I am constantly wearing an N95 mask and face shield, and the barrier that this presents between me and the patient is something that I do feel is a different feeling than the carefree, sort of close and connected way in which I was able to see patients in the past before this pandemic began. As much as you can try to communicate with your eyes and with the normal gestures you would use when you're speaking, the fact that half of your face is covered from your patients and the fact that half of theirs is covered from yours really interrupts that flow of patient-physician interaction. And I do miss that. I do miss that true face-to-face interaction where you can really feel like you know you are connecting, you know you are communicating, and that the patient is understanding everything they need to about making decisions about their care. And so that's probably the the major difference on a day-to-day basis, just the fact that I'm constantly covered and the patients are as well. But I do think that that is probably the safest thing for all of us to do right now, not only for myself, but for all of them. And so I, I accept it. And hopefully, you know, we, we won't have to do this for too much longer. We'll just bide our time, wait for a good vaccine. And eventually this will become similar to any other infectious disease that we have had to deal with in our time. Something like HIV, hepatitis, TB. We take the standard precautions that are expected in those particular situations and we'll go on with our practices. And then, you know, I, I do I do want to just mention one last thing before we wrap up, and that is um, related to all of this, you know, one other thing that has affected me and the way that I sort of think about communication at this point is a little bit altered also from what has developed over this COVID-19 pandemic insofar as, firstly, our global communication with each other within our subspecialty has exploded. And I think that's a wonderful, good thing that we are all communicating and we have the ability to do that online so easily. And we're taking advantage of it to share this information amongst you know, our community and with each other. But I will also say that it has brought to my attention the different ways in which people have responded to this information. And that is on one end, one end of the spectrum, people gathering or taking the information that is spread and and becoming a little bit alarmist, a little bit afraid, very anxious about what this means for our future. And on the other end, there are people who really don't want information. For example, this manuscript that is not certainly not a randomized controlled trial, 
certainly not at the highest, most robust uh, methodology that we would want to, you know, have in any sort of prospective study. Taking that and maybe wanting to not have it released or suppressing it because of the way they think it's going to be absorbed by other people in our community. And I just want to make a point that I think it's true that we have to be very careful about the way in which we communicate this data to the lay public, to media, and we need to really give them the highest level of evidence that we have. But I do think that we should give the benefit of the doubt to our colleagues within our own specialty who have all had you know, good training and understand how to take information like this in context with the limitations of the data in mind. And really, knowledge is power. I truly believe that. And so allowing people to take this information and do with it what they may can only help us as we move forward. Great points. You know, I have to say, going back to one of the things that you said about patient communication, I certainly have wondered if my eyes are able to communicate my smile, <laughs> my surprise, yeah. my caring. I do find myself perhaps trying to express a little bit more with my eyes than than maybe I, I did before. So yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely been a change. And I, I'm glad that you highlighted that. I've also been mostly pleasantly surprised at the open communication, obviously most of it online and in virtual forums, but I really feel like it has largely brought us together as a specialty, as a medical community, sharing information, reacting to it in whatever way. And I feel like those reactions, those, the increased interest the caring for uh, other safety and wanting to disseminate this knowledge has been very, very good for otolaryngology and for medicine in general. No, I just, I totally agree. So with that, I think we will close out the discussion. I would like to give my most heartfelt thanks to Dr. Zara Patel and the entire YOIFAS group for their work on this study. I encourage everyone to read the article, as well as Justin Turner's reply uh, and the other excellent articles in the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology Journal. Again, I'm Dr. Sarah Wise, guest host of this Scope It Out podcast, saying goodbye for now. Stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors. 